Welcome to the SG Engage podcast, where it's all social good all the time. Sit back and relax as the brightest minds from across the social good community engage with trends, big ideas, and best practices to help you drive impact. Welcome to today's episode of the Engage podcast. I'm your host, Kate Avert Anderson with the BlackBot Institute. Engaging your supporters is front of mind for any fundraiser, but when's the last time you put yourself into your donor's shoes? Outside of your development office, your supporters interact with your marketing, your website, events, and some probably serve as volunteers. Are you taking advantage of each of these opportunities to deepen those relationships? In this episode, I sit down with fundraising experts Lawrence Henze and Natalie Highland, who work together to develop an engagement strategy framework for the Union of Concerned Scientists, where Natalie served for 25 years. This framework was a step towards a top-down view of their donor journey, and it's available now for your own use through the BlackBot Institute's latest development plan toolkit. Before diving into your own planning, hear from Lawrence and Natalie on the tips and tricks they've learned along the way to better communicate with supporters. Let's get into it. And I would love to start with, you know, really looking at development of this particular framework. Uh, so maybe a good place to start, Natalie, is to ask you what specific challenges USC was facing that you were hoping to um, to address in the creation of this kind of framework. And then Lawrence, from there, maybe you can walk us through the way that this is structured and how um, organizations have utilized this framework. I had actually created our stewardship program, you know, years and years ago, getting it off the ground um, when we were a much smaller organization. And then as we started to grow and build out and have more layers of donor audiences that we were trying to work with, um, and as I was able to add to uh, the stewardship team and build our um, staff capacity, we sort of understood that we had not, we'd lost uh, any kind of strategic kind of frame for how we were stewarding our donors and thinking about the different segments and how we were engaging them appropriate to their giving level. And so our stewardship officer at the time I was managing, we, we sort of together undertook to try to figure out how we looked at that and really understood it so that we could start to make sure, A, make sure we were stewarding people at the right levels um, with the right levels of, of engagement, um, as well as to then see what gaps and opportunities there would be. And so that sort of set us on the course of developing the structure uh, and in doing so, you know, it helped us to understand better what we were doing and, and be able to map things out. And it also served as a great communication tool, which was sort of a secondary benefit that we could then convey to our colleagues across the department, as well as anyone um, around the organization who had a stake and an interest in how this all worked, to be able to sort of see as a snapshot how we were supporting and engaging our donors, um, and particularly for society managers, that they could have a holistic view of how they were um, being supported. So um, that's sort of the, the thumbnail of, of sort of the origins of this project. Lawrence, maybe this is where you can pick up on how you work together to develop this framework and how you would suggest it's utilized. So um, when I was working with uh, UCS and, and Natalie in particular, um, I started talking about, you know, a, a, com a communication strategy. And then Natalie says, oh, we have that. And it was absolutely the first time out of working with, you know, a thousand plus clients in my career that an organization had established something like this. And I had been talking about this with clients mostly unsuccessfully for many years <laughs> to get them to take a look at the communication stream of their organization. 
And I was so adamant about this because, first of all, I had been in fundraising for 14 years and I'd been successful at a couple different places. I've always asked my clients to put me on their mailing list and um, I would typically make a donation to them to see how they communicated with me as a donor. Um, and I spent eight years tracking those communications. What I found was that um, there were some organizations that sent me at least at least 36 direct mail pieces in a year. And then as um, email and electronic communications became more uh, prevalent, they would add on with those. And so I tracked that and thought, first of all, I had always thought that if if Lawrence was a, a donor in November and December, which is my typical giving pattern, um, why are they asking me 36 times to give? Why aren't they observing my giving pattern then? asking me in a more relevant fashion uh, and timely fashion. And I also thought of just the sheer expense of sending out 36 direct mail pieces. And were the or- these organizations calculating the return on investment? Were they saying this is what it costs to have a direct marketing program? This is what we're bringing in from a direct marketing program. And uh, so I was really blessed to have uh, – UCS as a client and then to see that they had developed something like this. And Natalie and I have presented on this before at a BBCon uh, conference and she, she and her colleagues were very willing to share this with our clientele. And from my understanding, Natalie, as you progressed past this time when you uh, shared this document with me, you made some modifications to this strategy. Yeah, I mean, we, it's, it's, we've had several versions of it because it doesn't, doesn't serve you well if it stays static, right? You have to continue to adapt it to your needs and to the program. So we, we've sort of said, okay, if we're trying to get our hands around what this looks like, um, what are the main ways that we are actually cultivating, stewarding our donors? And we defined it as um, thanking, recognition, and engagement. And so we created three channels for that. And then we, put our donor populations, our mid-level giving, our major donors, our boards, our core memberships, sustainers, uh, plan giving kind of stacked under that. And we tracked the what they were receiving in each of those three categories so that we could be sure that everyone was getting touched in each of those categories at least once in the year. And then we were able to take that and map it into the calendar format and get a sense of what the arc of the year looks like for a supporter and see, um, make sure it looked even and balanced and that there was a range of ways we were engaging them. And so from there, we're able to just continue to refine um, and identify different slices of, of our population that we might be able to layer into that framework beyond those kind of standard donor segments. And I'm curious, uh, as you uh, worked through that, you know, I think that one thing that we we're emphasizing that this toolkit is also, you know, hearing from your donors on how they'd like to be communicated with. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you kind of see an evolution there, you know, as your strategies evolved and listening to how your donors want to be communicated with, whether that's through a survey or just through the data of the return? Um, would you say that that was an incremental process? Yes. And we do, you know, we did do, um, we have different, different channels of, of surveying, certainly, and so we do, we pride ourselves, we have a high retention rate for um, for our sector, and we've always been really proud of that. And I think a lot of that has to do with 
being responsive to how people want to be communicated with. So we have an annual only stream. We have, you know, a no mail newsletter. So we have email versions of our newsletters. So we try to make sure that when people are requesting certain things, we have the structures in which to um, meet those meet those needs as best we can. And I think, um, Lawrence, this might be I'm jumping ahead a bit, but I, this brings to mind also that you know, all of these different communication streams that we're looking at, um, whether that's email, direct mail, you know, we're, we think about that often within the development office or an outreach office. Um, but I think that a big thing that we want to touch on is breaking down those silos and making sure that organizations are carrying through these messages um, through marketing, through volunteering. So, you know, as far as utilizing a framework like this um, across different departments, um, is that part of the vision for this is so that you can have one central place um, to be able to share, you know, even just a very broad overview of your communication so that that's something that can be uh, shared across the organization? So I started my fundraising career in uh, higher education. And one of the things I learned very quickly is that higher education was an incredibly siloed environment. Um, if you look at the academic side, there's uh, – colleges and schools, and then there's majors and departments. And um, I'm convinced without any scientific evidence other than the power of observation that fundraising in higher education took on that business model of having silos by functional area. One of the things I think happened, again, no scientific evidence, but um, Nonprofits looked at higher education as being very successful in raising money and then tried to emulate the higher education process. And then we ended up with fundraising silos, planned giving and uh, major giving and direct marketing and stewardship. And and as I um, found out in many instances, something that's decreasing today, but still was still is out there is the fact that, you know, for instance, uh, Excel spreadsheets are used to track data when you, somebody has a, a razor's edge, uh, database. And that's just a, that's a example of data silosation. I, I don't know if silosation is a word, but we'll just uh, offer it up today for discussion purposes. So when we look at the overall concept of successful engagement, um, there's two things I think that stand out. When you, when you take a job at a nonprofit college or university, I think you need to be fully committed to the mission of the organization and your job is to help that mission be fulfilled. And when you're in an, an advancement type role, that comes down to funding, but you just can't ask for money without engaging people. I should say you can, but you won't be as successful. And then there has to be some type of coherent strategy on how you uh, ask for money. So if we want to make silos disappear, there's a couple different ways to do that. Well, there are actually many different ways to do that. But let's start with internal communication. It's great that you get all the different functional areas together and develop a plan like Natalie and her colleagues did at UCS. It, it was a plan that... Um, overlap many different functional areas within the Union of Concerned Scientists. 
And then in terms of the external communications, now that you have opened the communications up internally, you can say, all right, how do we want to present ourselves to our constituents? Can we do this in an organized way? And can we differentiate communications? I remember when I um, first started in fundraising, and it was 43 years ago. So, um, for example, it's more years ago than Kate's been on this earth. Um, and I was reading through one of my first assignments was to write the fall fundraising letter for the college. And I was reading past examples of that. And the most recent one that preceded me coming to the college was um, you all remember those fall days where the leaves were changing and you were attending a football game and all those kind of things. And the reality is only some people remember that it that way. And so we started um, targeting different generations of the college differently. So that was really my first implementation of let's think about our constituents as constituents and let's survey them whenever possible to get some feedback from them. And my next comment has to do with the fact that any of you who make political donations experience this, whether you're Republican, independent or Democrat, um, that they ask for your input on issues that are important to you, but they always tie it to, well, will you send us $25 to support us in our work on these issues? If you really want to get an honest survey, don't ask for something at the end other than their finishing survey. That's my personal input on that. When you start communicating with people based on their experience with your organization, they start to see they start to realize that you see and hear them as opposed to giving two or three attributes to your entire constituent database and thinking that they all see you the same way. What I've seen happen when an institution implements that policy is one of the things that pops up is that uh, volunteerism increases. People reach out to the organization and say, how can I help? And there's many different roles for volunteers. Um, one of the organizations that uh, you know, 20 years later is still doing this, the, um, they have volunteers making thank you calls um, to donors. And it's incredibly well received. Um, and their donor retention rate is excellent. So um, I think it would be great now if we go back to Natalie and she can talk about some of the successes they had at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Sure. Um, yeah, um, uh, there's two stories I was going to share. Um, one that really uh, speaks to what you were talking about earlier, Lawrence, about sort of the volume of mail and and sort of this this best pra- understood best practice that we just have to send as many solicitations as possible to raise the money we need to raise. And at UCS, we question question that assumption, uh, and this was probably. Um, Maybe eight years ago, I think that that, and I won't take credit for this. This was my uh, CDO at the time and our director of membership that that built out this plan. But it did dovetail with our stewardship work in really important ways. Um, they wanted to see what would happen if we dramatically cut back our the number of solicitations we sent to our supporters. And so I think at the time we were doing maybe 14 or 16 print mailings a year. And this is not email, email we send plenty of, as, as so many of us do. Um, 
And so we ended up taking our core membership file, so everyone who was under our mid-level giving levels, and dividing it into two groups, one being the control who got our regular mail stream for a year, and the other that we cut back to four mailings, four solicitations a year. And the secret here was that we told them that we were doing it. And we told them that we wanted to reduce the mail. We knew that that's what people were looking for from us, um, both to reduce the clutter, save costs, also because as an organization with an environmental mission that people were looking for that paper reduction and valuing that, and that we were counting on them to meet us there. And if we sent them a solicitation, that they would respond to it. And if they could do that, then we would be able to keep their mail volume low. So we set that out at the start of the year, and then we did those four appeals. And what we found at the end of the year was that there was not a measurable difference between the two groups, between the reduced solicitation uh, revenue and the full solicitation revenue. And so with that, we made the decision to move our entire file over into that framework. And uh, again, we, we told them told everyone that we were doing that. And every year we remind them of that um, through a wrapper on our magazine. So we, we can just kind of kick things off and refresh that. And we've been able to consistently kind of meet and grow our um, membership revenue um, in direct mail. And I was saying this connects to our cultivation strategies because we do, in addition to the four solicitation mailings, we send four cultivation mailings. So they basically get one every other piece that they get from this serves those two purposes. And the cultivation pieces, um, the first one in the year is a tax slip. The last one of the year is our annual report or for our core file is a brochure version, a much smaller, more streamlined version of our annual report. And then we send two informational mailings in the middle of the year to just tell people about our work. And so that's been a way we've been able to meet our supporters where they are and what they want. Um, we've been able to continue to keep our revenue strong, and we are trying to um, save those costs and redirect those resources in other ways. And then the other story I can tell, and again, this is really our highest level engagement strategy, um, and this one that I've been managing for, for the 20 plus years that I've been um, at UCS, is the creation of a national advisory board. And this was a designed to jumpstart our very stalled major giving program many years ago. It was suggested that by consultants, so again, I won't take credit for it myself, but we took the concept and developed um, this group, and it was designed to be an attachment strategy, a way to bring people closer into the circle of the organization and help them feel more connected and more personally invested in the work of the organization. Uh, so I've been running that group for almost 20 years, uh, and it's been just an incredibly rich and rewarding way to engage with supporters. And it's, it's, it gives them the opportunity to understand not just what we do, but how we do it and why we do it. And the, through those direct and personal interactions with our staff um, and our experts. And so that has been a real benefit um, and really just jump-started our major gift program and has helped to spur our growth over time. And one of the benefits of that work is that it also has helped us to take some of the best learnings from what makes the uh, National Advisory Board such an effective stewardship model and apply it to our core supporter base, um, which goes to helping people feel personally connected to the organization, providing lots of opportunities for them to hear from staff, both through programs and through mailings, and to just feel that investment 
in the work and the donation that they made in a real tangible way um, that I think has really boosted our program across the board. That's fabulous. I think what stands out to me in both of those stories is your willingness to test. Mm -hmm. I think that especially when it comes to fundraising, it can feel extremely risky um, to change direction, uh, especially if you're going to commit a full year to addressing things differently. Mm -hmm. Um, But as you prove in the long run, it winds up very much benefiting you. So for me personally, uh, my, my staff always knows this, that my two favorite words are scope and pilot because they're great ways to undertake something without committing um, and lets you learn and try things. And it just allows that frame of mind allows a lot more space for innovation and taking risks because you can scale them appropriately. It gives room for staff who might have a good idea to take something small and pop it out and try something different or, or vet it internally and decide it's really a good idea. So there's, it gives you space to try things. And I think, you know, fundraising, you always have to be innovating and trying to catch up to where people are. Um, and so I think it's, it's a really critical piece. And then obviously data is essential. Um, and I, I am less of a data person inherently and my, my former boss definitely, uh, is much more of one. And so from, uh, from the reduced solicitation, it like, it all was driven by the data and making sure that those performance trends held and that we weren't going to lose ground and we weren't undertaking risks. Um, in, that, in our revenue stability by making that change. And Lawrence, I know you're a big proponent of data and testing. Um, so, yes. You know, as far as your advice for organizations that are hoping to, you know, that are sensing like this, sensing that they need to take a different approach in their engagement, what would you suggest is a good place to start as far as testing? My first comment would be not directly related to testing, but um, would be as uh, Natalie's boss did. I went to meet with their direct mail uh, vendor when they implemented this new plan, and she was very adamant with them about the fact that this is the plan that they were going to test, and it belonged to their organization. And it's just a reminder to anybody out there who uses outside counsel for direct marketing is that it's it's your direct marketing or annual fund. It is not their program. So you need to put your stamp on it. And if you have data, you should the data is going to most likely give you different segments of your file, which really just sets up so nicely to testing different messaging and different strategies segments. And then again, I just want to say that uh, I had until I started working with UCS, I had never worked with a client that had that mindset um, baked into their organization, which was great. Maybe it has something to do with testing and the scientific method and union of concerned scientists. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Natalie can speak to that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think we just had a lot of support for for innovation and trying things from from all levels. And so you need that culture, I think, to support those risks because it's very easy to get stuck in the this is what we've always done. And being oh. a being a twenty plus year incumbent, I, I I'm very conscious of when I'm saying that or when I'm telling people there are reasons why we do things a certain way and, and where that can be a barrier. So it's, you know, having people who are creating the groundwork for trying things and, and just having that openness um, or to come back to something that you did once and maybe there's a better way to do it a new time. You know, I think just you're always needing to create space in, a, in an environment that allows people to pull those ideas forward. I would also just add to the testing strategy that if, if you're changing messaging um, in who you're talking to, that 
yes, you track the results from the first time you do that, but if it, if the results aren't exactly what you hope for, I wouldn't abandon the testing plan after just one attempt because you're trying something new. And just to add to one thing that uh, Natalie said, uh, I think the worst words in fundraising are we've always done it this way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Unless you can back up that it's really successful, um, then that's great if, if, if it's really successful. But if you're, if you're in an environment where let's say you're raising $2 million and you're being asked to raise $3 million, I'm not sure saying, well, we've always done it this way is going to get you to 3 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've always done it this way seems to get you two million. Mm-hmm. So you need to innovate. I really appreciate you both sharing these success stories and these strategies that I think are very scalable um, and something that a lot of organizations can learn from. Thank you, Sven. Yeah, thank you.